It's easy to get frustrated right now about all that we can't do. And that's because the list of what we can't do just keeps persisting. We can't walk into a building without wearing a mask. We can't go to a baseball game. I can't travel to Canada to visit my family. And we keep making plans only to discover that, well, we can't do those plans and we need to change our plans. But God is concerned mostly about what we can do, not what we can't do. And that's because God has centered our freedom in what no one can restrict us from doing. In the Bible, many people faced far greater restrictions than we are. But that did not stop them from doing what was important. Their examples speak to us from across the centuries and remind us of all that we can do. So rather than focus on what we can't do, we're going to look at all that we can do. The first example of what we can do comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul was a first century church planter and starter, and he ended up being a writer of much of the New Testament portion of the Bible. Now that is a very impressive resume, and to be honest, we can't do what Paul did in terms of writing the New Testament and starting all those churches. And the reason is that like everyone, God had given Paul a unique set of gifts and a unique set of opportunities. And we are, of course, different from Paul in that we don't have the same gifts that he did, and we certainly don't find ourselves facing the same world that Paul did and the same set of opportunities that he did. But we can do one of the most important things that Paul did. We can press on like Paul did. Now, what allowed Paul to leverage the gifts and opportunities that God gave him is the same thing that it takes to leverage the gifts and the opportunities that God has given us. He did not quit. He pressed on. He kept pressing on in face of all kinds of obstacles, and in spite of increasing restrictions. One of my favorite examples of how Paul pressed on is how he responded to being arrested and then put in prison. Now, I don't like wearing a mask, but that's nothing like the restriction of being put in a prison cell. Paul was an ambassador of Christ. That was his assignment from God. And as such, like any ambassador, he traveled the then-known world, uh, telling people about Jesus Christ and starting churches. So you'd think that the imprisonment deal would end the ambassador assignment. As I said, an ambassador, by definition, is is a traveler, and Paul was in prison. But God had not changed Paul's assignment. So Paul pressed on, and an indicator of that is Paul began to refer to himself as an ambassador in chains. Now, that's a hilarious contradiction in terms. An ambassador is someone who travels, someone in chains is someone who can't travel. So what Paul did is in in prison, he wrote letters to all the churches that he had planted, and those letters, unlike him, could travel. And those letters became a part of the New Testament. And that's because Paul didn't give up. Paul didn't know that they were going to become part of the New Testament, but that was God's plan. He just kept pressing on, kept moving forward to do what God wanted him to do. And now, at a distance of 2,000 years, Paul's example tells us what we can do, and that is what he did. We can press on. We can press on in spite of the disappointments of this particular year or whatever is happening in your life or my life. This is what Paul said about pressing on. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says this, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is using the image 
of a runner in a race. And a runner in a race has one objective, and that is to win the prize. Runners in a race view struggle very differently than people out for a walk in the park. Runners expect struggle because, well, they're in a race, and there's a lot of strain, and there's a lot of barriers to overcome, and a lot of effort. So when they hit the proverbial wall, they're not shocked. They expect that to happen, and they decide to press through all of that challenge. But we tend to think that life is kind of more like a stroll, a walk in the park, and so when we hit a wall, we're, we're shocked. We're surprised that things are as hard as they really are. But the Bible makes it very clear that this life is not a stroll in the park. This life is more like a race. It's a race against sin, our own sin, and the sin of others that's stalking us and chasing us. And it's a race really against time and the opportunities that are embedded in time. And whenever we hit the wall, as Paul says, the one thing that we must do is forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead. Now, that sounds like two things, not one. But it's one overall effort that requires both a do and a don't. It looks like this. Here's a picture of of runners in a race. And there is something that everyone in this race is doing, and there's something that everyone in this race is not doing. They are all straining towards what is ahead, and they're all not looking behind them. Now, the race of life requires the same kind of singular focus And it requires both kinds of efforts, not looking behind and focusing ahead. That's what it means to press on. And like Paul, we can do this. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can press on. So let's look at both elements of this singular focus. First, I can forget the past. I cannot look back. I can choose to to not allow the past to distract me. That's the first part of, of pressing on, is deciding to not let the past get you confused, and get you distracted. Whenever an athlete runs, they take off their their sweats, their pants, their jacket, because in a race, extra weight is not your friend. In the race of life, our past kind of clings to us like heavy clothing does. And Paul is not talking here about the kind of forgetting that's like an amnesia of the past, where you don't really remember your history, you don't remember the important events of your life or the important people of your past. He's talking about a very specific kind of forgetting. And there are two parts of the past that he tells us to forget that really cling to us and weigh us down and keep us from pressing on in following Jesus Christ. The first part of the past that we really need to make sure we we don't allow to hang on to us is the past sin of our life. Whenever sin occurs, it never stays in the past. If it's a sin that we have done, it follows us into the future in the form of guilt. If it's a sin that has been done to us by someone else, it follows us into the future in the form of bitterness against that person. And guilt and bitterness have the same effect on us. They draw our attention to the past. So how are we supposed to forget the past then? We can't just pretend that the wrong that we did didn't really happen or the wrong that was done to us didn't really hurt. It did. We can't go back in time and undo what's been done. We need a real solution in order to turn our head from the past and look to the future. Paul describes the solution this way. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is the that for which? Why did Christ take hold of us? Well, Christ takes hold of us, people like you and me, because we are stuck in the pit of our sin. And so Jesus reaches out his hand descending from heaven into this sinful world to grab hold of those who will just lift up their hands back to him and take hold of his. 
Now, we are not free yet of sin. As it says, Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. But in Christ, we are forgiven when he takes hold of us. And our future is now certain, not because of the great strength of our moral effort, but because of the great power of his grip and his ability to lift us out of the past. Now, whose grip is doing the primary holding here? It's describing the grip of Christ Jesus as the one who's doing most of the holding. It may look to us like we reached out and we decided to follow Jesus Christ, but if you could see the entire exchange as it really happened, it would be more like us lifting a little finger slightly elevated in Jesus' direction and asking for help, and then Jesus diving to the depths of our own sin and taking hold of us and pulling us up. So to wallow in guilt, to allow our attention to focus on our past sin, is to insult the strength and the power of his grip to hold us and lift us up. It's kind of like a toddler who's taking their first steps, holding onto their parents' hands, and that toddler thinking that it's their power that's giving them the strength to walk. Yes, their legs are moving, but it's the strength of the parent's grip and the power of the parent that is really providing the ability for that toddler to walk. That's what it's like when Jesus takes hold of us. Yes, we still must move. Yes, we still must make effort. But it's the power of the grip of Jesus that really is the one that gives us the ability to move forward. And so when Jesus takes hold of us, he doesn't let go. So Paul says, I press on to take hold of that. What? The forgiveness that Jesus offers. I press on to accept the forgiveness in my own life and to move on from my guilt. But I also press on to get better and better at offering that same kind of forgiveness to others, the forgiveness that Jesus has given me. I press on past the bitterness of the past and all that people have done to me. I reach out to others in the same way that Jesus Christ has reached out to me. It makes no sense to reach out for the forgiveness of God with one hand and then with the other hand try to attack someone who has done me wrong. We must reach them also with forgiveness. So there's both hands that are involved in this. That's our past sin. Jesus took hold of us so that we can set aside our past sin, and he offers us forgiveness. The second part of our past, though, is the past patterns. We don't just sin once. We often sin repeatedly. And together, these sins become patterns. For example, if lust or anger, for example, were singular occurrences, then we could just ask for forgiveness, and that would be the end of that matter. But part of the reason that we lust or that we lose our temper is that these have become patterns for us, deep ruts in our hearts. We've lusted or lost our temper thousands of times before. And so all it takes now is the slightest temptation and the cumulative weight of those previous sins are like a thousand pound weight that just weighs us down and puts us back into the ruts of our past patterns and drag us down. Now we ask for forgiveness And that's the end of our guilt. But that's not the end of our struggle. So what can we do about these patterns? Well, thankfully, the reason Christ Jesus reached out his hand to take hold of us was not just to keep us from sinking into the abyss, but to actually pull us out of the pit of the abyss of our sin. So he pulls us out of the pit. Now, this takes a little more work than just simply accepting the forgiveness that he offers We need to work on learning an entire new set of patterns to replace the old set of patterns of our past. And the problem with patterns is we can't learn patterns all by ourselves. We need help. 
The weight of our past is just too big. Patterns are learned primarily by watching the example of other people that matter to us. And this is how we've learned the patterns that we've gotten. We've maybe observed the patterns of our parents or the patterns of our siblings or the patterns of friends, the patterns of heroes that we admire, and then we've decided which one of these patterns we really want to emulate and adopt. And so if we're going to learn new patterns, patterns about God's ways of doing life, we need to learn them from other people. We need to join a new family, the family of God. So Paul goes on to talk about this in the next verse. This is what it says in Philippians 3.17. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The Bible presents the patterns of God on how to live the kind of life that is different from the sinful patterns that we've all developed. But it's really hard to adopt a new pattern of living just simply by reading about it. We can read about it in the Bible and we could say we really would like to be that kind of person, but we learn new patterns the same way we learned our old patterns. We learned our old patterns by following an example of others and we will adopt the new patterns the same way. You know, I, for example, I had read a lot before I got married about the pattern that God gives for marriage and then the pattern that God gives for how we are to raise children. But it wasn't until I saw people that I knew and respected do it that I was challenged at that point to rewire the way I did marriage and rethink the way I do parenting. And I learned from them, their example. And I could go on and on and on about examples of this in my life. It's very important to read the Bible and read about the new patterns, but we also need to learn in the context of the example of other people in the family of God. So if you call out for Jesus to save you, and he pulls you out of the pit. But if you don't, as it says here, join with others in following an example and live according to the pattern that you see in other Christians around you, you're going to keep getting pulled back into the old patterns. Now, Jesus will not let go of your hand if you, let, if you get back into the old patterns, but your life will be a whole lot worse than it has to be. So this is the forgetting the past part. This is making sure as we run the race, we're, we're not turning our heads backward and getting tripped up in the past. Now we turn our attention to the future. I can remember the prize. So first, I can forget the past. Now, what helps me look forward is to remember the prize, the finish line, what we're really trying to move towards. This is why Paul did not quit. He kept his eye, he kept his focus on the finish line, pressing towards the end of life. He says this again in verse 14. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I saw an example of what Paul is talking about here when my daughter was seven years old and she was in a swimming race. It was about halfway through the the first lap in the race and uh, she was just uh, partway through that race and all of a sudden she lifted her head up out of the water. And it wasn't to take a breath. It was to find her friend. And her friend was swimming two lanes over. And I noticed when I looked at her friend, her head had also popped up. And the two of them were looking at each other, and they were still kind of moving forward in the race, but they were smiling and waving at each other. And at that point, I knew neither of those two girls are going to win this race because they had lost focus on the future. They'd forgotten the prize. They'd turned smiling and being friendly to each other as the prize. This is what Paul is talking about. If we get distracted, if we forget the prize, then we're not going to be able to press forward. We're going to, we're going to stop too soon. Paul goes on to tell us how to keep our focus on the prize and not be distracted. And the best way to describe what he says is, is in the form of two questions. 
These two questions reveal what our focus is, what we're really looking at in life as we move forward. The first question is this, what dominates your mind? What dominates your mind? What we think about always points to what we're focused on. What takes up our thoughts, what we obsess on, what we're focused on, that is the prize that we are looking towards. So Paul goes on to say this in the next few verses, Philippians 3, 18 through 19. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. That's their prize. Now, if I were to ask those of you that are watching this, whether or not you would consider yourself to be an enemy of the cross, my guess is that none of you would say that. And the reason is, this is a church. And we have all decided to be uh, loyalists to the cross of Christ. We follow Christ. But this verse was written to a church. And like us, I assume they had declared their allegiance to the cross of Christ. But Paul didn't say with tears, that many of them were, were enemies of the cross, he is saying they're actually living like enemies of the cross. In other words, they probably declared their allegiance to Jesus. But the pattern of their lives was in opposition to him. They were living as if they were actually enemies of the cross. How could Paul tell? Well, a person's prize, what they are actually living for, always shows up in what's on their mind. As he says, their mind is on earthly things. That's how he knew. The prize that they were working for was something here on earth. Now, heaven is nice, and they definitely, I'm sure, would want to go there. But what really mattered to them most, what really dominated their thought, was something here. That's what they were focused on. You can tell by the way they made their decisions. As Paul goes on to say, their God is their stomach. Now, what does a stomach do? Well, it gets hungry. It grumbles. Why? It's because it has an appetite. Well, what is a God? He says, their God is their stomach. Well, something that's God is the priority in your life. It's your number one. So if your stomach is your God, what that means is that your appetites, what you desire, that becomes your number one. That becomes the central focus of your decision-making structure. And therefore, you orient your time, you orient your thoughts, you orient your money around satisfying whatever the appetites that you're currently desiring. Now, this is not talking primarily about food. It's talking about desire in general. And that's because this world really is one giant buffet of desire. There's one desire after another that's presented before us on the smorgasbord table of this world. And almost everybody is standing in line in front of some desire, something that they really want. And therefore, they're fixating their mind on it, and they're organizing their entire life and resources around it. But... The destiny, as Paul says, of these desires, of this buffet, is destruction. What that means is everything on this table of desire will one day be no longer. It'll be destroyed. And in that day, the things that we prized and spent years getting and thinking about will suddenly go from shiny oohs and ahs that captured our attention to something that we're going to be embarrassed that we ever pursued. That's what this word means or this idea means when it says their glory is their shame. The idea is the, the things that they gloried in before that, they, that captured their attention, they're now going to be embarrassed about at that point. So does this mean that we can't have anything on the table? That we shouldn't satisfy any desire, any appetite? No, we do need to eat. 
And we have jobs that require thought. We can't just spend our entire lives thinking only about heaven and only about Jesus. The problem isn't desire itself. It isn't the stomach. The problem is turning the stomach into our God and making our desires our priority, making our desires God. And then what happens is God gets the leftovers and we lose sight of the future that we're really heading towards and we get off track and we stop pressing on. The second question that identifies what our prize is, what we're really focused on, is this question. Where is your Savior from? Where is your Savior from? A prize is also something that we believe will save us. It could be as simple as making us feel emotionally better and that kind of saving. But a prize is what we think is really going to come to our rescue. So here's what Paul goes on to say in verses 20 and 21 of Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, not here, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The Savior locator test, in other words, if you want to know where your Savior is located, one of the great evidences of that is endurance, how long you can endure. If your Savior is from here, the length of time that you will keep pressing on and you will endure is, is fairly limited. And that's because eventually you're going to give up when it looks like you're not going to get what you desire here. But if your citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says, what that means is you are eagerly awaiting a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus comes through for you here and right now in this life, well, that, that'll be great. But if he doesn't, then you can keep enduring because your Savior isn't from here. Your Savior is from heaven. And no matter what happens in this life, you know that he will bring in the next life, as it says, he'll bring everything under his control. Right now, it doesn't look like everything's under his control. It is, but it doesn't look like it. But in heaven, we will see everything under his control. And he will transform our lowly bodies so it will be like his glorious body. So when life is hard, if your Savior is from heaven, then you'll press on. If your Savior is from here, then you don't have a reason to press on. So if you're looking for just a spiritual walk in the park, something to kind of make you feel better about yourself, Jesus is not that. That's not what he offers. But if you want to live your life for something that you will, be not, you will not be ashamed of in the end, and if you need the help of a hand that will never let go of your hand, then your Savior is Jesus Christ. Only He can pull us out of our past sinful patterns. Only He can save us now and for all of eternity. But until that day, we must, as Paul says, do one thing. Forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, we must press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice the strain on the faces of these runners in this picture. There is a stadium full of distractions. This was taken back when stadiums were full. So there's a stadium of distractions around these runners. But these runners cannot risk even a glance over their shoulder, even slightly to the side. You'll notice they have their focus, their strength, their thought, everything on the next step in front of them. Now the race in this picture is a sprint. But the race that Paul is referring to is a marathon. It's a long-distance race. 
And it's not until you run a long distance that you experience the proverbial wall that runners face. That's not a physical wall, but it's called a wall because it kind of feels like a physical wall. It feels like you just can't take another step. The way you push through the wall is you just keep taking that next step. You don't look too far ahead of you. It looks impossible if you look just even 10 steps ahead. But if you just keep focusing on the next step, well, you can take one more step. And then you can take one more step. And that's how you push through the wall. Many times you will be at the end of your emotional strength. And your mind will be screaming that you cannot go on. But you can. You can press on. This is an everyday decision. Sometimes it's an every moment decision. Don't let the past discourage you. Don't let your sins in the past discourage you. But also, don't let your past successes fool you and lull you into a sense of complacency. You know, past success is no guarantee of future success. You know, if you ran a successful marathon in college, that doesn't mean you can run a successful marathon in your 40s. You have to train for it. You cannot, as the phrase often says, rest on your laurels. That saying actually comes from a racing context. It comes from the ancient Olympic Games, resting on your laurels. Winners in those ancient games were given laurel wreaths as an award. So to rest on your laurels meant that you became lazy and complacent about what you could achieve in the future because you were too busy basking in the memories of your former success. So no matter what your past is, whether it's spotted with all kinds of failure or a lot of success, focus on what's ahead and press on. God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. So we must press on today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for reaching out your hand to us, for covering the distance between heaven and earth, taking on a body, and dying in our place. And we trust in the strength of your grip. We know how weak our grip is. We know that our own will and our own performance is often very frail. But you will not let go. And so we take hold of that for which you have taken hold of us. And we press on. We move forward. We ask for strength and help in the middle of this really challenging season. We pray that you'd help us to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And you would help us to follow the examples of others around us who are following you. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.